Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Michael Wheeler uh, at his home in Portland. It's July 11th, 2022. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all. Uh, first question to get you started is why wine? Well, <clears throat> um, a friend's family bought three liquor stores in 1974, and by 1776, I was working there as a kid. And uh, while I did do some college, the wine business stuck for me. Mm-hmm. By 78, I was involved in the buying and then um, eventually moved to New York. So before we get on that, let's talk a little bit about kind of uh, before that. So tell me about uh, where you were born and raised and what, where you were before New York. I was born in Lemonster, Massachusetts, plastic city of the world. <laughs> Ever seen the pink flamingo? Mm-hmm. We, we did that. Not me personally, but, <laughs> nor my family, but uh, we were a big industrial town, small town, but industrial. And, um, you know, that's it. That's Lemonster Mass. <laughs> so what, what brought you to New York then? So <clears throat> I, um, the job that I had in Massachusetts gave me uh, lots of time off as long as I worked 80 hours a week. <laughs> so I spent uh, four to six months of all the early years traveling. Mm-hmm. A lot of it going to uh, Grateful Dead concerts or various places around the, the world. And um, I met uh, a woman that lived in New York. She was off to Paris, said join her, then we're off to New York. So, And then that's where I luckily got to start working with William Socklin of the D. Socklin Wine Company. <clears throat> Bill was quite... Uh, People called him the P.T. Barnum of wine. He was entertaining, slightly crazy, (laughs) but uh, everything was fresh and unique, and uh, we would have a container of wine show up that was all the way back to 1955, all beautiful Portuguese wines that never seen before. So it was a a very awesome opportunity, you know. that's where I first saw an Oregon wine. I don't think we really promoted Oregon in the uh, early years in Massachusetts. We may have had one, but I can't remember. Mm-hmm. So I started at Sockland in 1984, and he was into uh, Oregon wine. And you might remember this guy named Steve Carey. Mm-hmm. And so Carey was selling wine to Winebow. And uh, it was a... Uh, if it was new, Bill wanted to be part of it. <laughs> so this is right before the great tasting of 1985. As you know, Al Hodgkins did that event at the International Wine Cellar that really kind of blew up uh, Oregon wine in New York. Mm-hmm. So after that, I then got a job at Winebow, and I was involved in various things, but I got to make a trip to Knuts and Erath, I think, in 1987, while it was still, you know, Knuts and Erath, and I... To me, to this day, drinking that 83 Reserve is still one of the greatest wines from Oregon that's ever been made. And then I jumped over to Skernick after a while, and Skernick launched, uh, um, from what I remember anyway, uh, Christum. Mm-hmm. And we had Brick House, and 
That's sort of chapter one for Oregon wine for me. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the Oregon part of things, tell me about your wine education. Uh, what, what did it consist of and what, was, what about wine was intriguing and fascinating to you? <clears throat> well, to me, wine is about history, of course, but it's really about how it tastes, you know? And so we didn't have wine education. There was no wine magazines. It was a magazine called Vintage. Mm -hmm. It's a really old wine magazine that, you know, quite interesting if you want to track some copies down, you know? Mm -hmm. um, this was before Parker. Parker was 78, if I'm correct. And I think the wine advocate was before Parker, but um, we, we just had to do it on our own. We just had to just pop bottles. We were just curious, you know, we would take five bottles home and this was back in the day when wine was so available. Hmm. Old wine, hmm. rare wine. Uh, you may be old enough to remember the, the gas crisis or no? Yeah. Vaguely. Yeah. So when there was the gas crisis, also the Bordeaux market crashed. So <clears throat> all this, there was a couple of vintages that weren't great. So um, just brought all the prices of wine down, including older vintages. So it was just a, it was a great time to be curious about wine. What did you find yourself, uh, what, what did you find appealing about the wines that you liked? What, what was it about them that you enjoyed? Wow, it's um, <laughs> the way they taste, you know, I'm sorry, you know. It was, you know, I mean, I was just, I was in love with Burgundy, you know, I mean, it was just to me that still stays, you know, as my favorite wine in the world, red Burgundy. And um, I don't know, they just, they just, you know, you just, back then they tasted a little bit better than today, in my <laughs> humble opinion, but, you know, it just brought you to this place, this, you know, sort of a magical place of, you know, I don't know, like, ancient, you know, so. So tell me about, uh, you mentioned you kind of got, to, got in on Oregon a little before everybody else in the area. Uh, what was the sort of reaction in New York post the, the big 1985 event? It, it just, you know, that's it, a Sockland Wine Company, whatever we wanted to sell, we sold. You know, mm -hmm. Bill was the leader and, you know, we just made, you know, he made it happen. But, uh, you know, it just, Working at Winebow in 1986, you know, I think we, from what I remember, we had David Aislheim. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Sorry if I do other mispronunciations <laughs> over the, this interview. But David was great, and the wines were great, and we had other ones too, and it was just starting to, like, bloom, and people wanted to, it was just opened up. I mean, Al Hutchkins was a, was a great, great wine guy you know he had a store burgundy wine company he had uh, these places called tastings which were cruvenets and you got to go there and drink old old bottles of bordeaux and burgundy and you know mm -hmm. side by side with you know some oregon wine so you can do your own little tastings so at that at this point you're you're kind of late 80s uh, in new york what come what came next for you at that point well, uh, Skernick for a while, and then I worked, uh, then I became a, a minority partner at a place called Palaner Selections. Um, Doug Palaner is a, another great palate and great company, and even his wife, Tina, built an incredible business. And uh, that ended, and I was thinking of joining another company, um, but then I decided, talking to my wife, that it was time for 
change. Mm -hmm. And we knew that we could open a company here because you know somebody was going out of business and we knew some importers that were available. And so we knew it would be a, um, an easy, uh, easy launch. How well would it do? I don't know, but it would be an easy launch. You know, so we started with Louis Dresner, and we started with Jose Pastor, and we started with a few other things, and uh, today we've built, you know, quite quite the wine company. And um, when I decided to move, um, I visited Cameron um, because that was at the company I was thinking of joining as a partner, and. Um, you know, when I visited them, I was like Nebbiolo and Italian varietals, you know, I didn't really quite expect that. And then more importantly, I met Scott Frank at this, uh, he was, uh, I guess, assistant or, you know, assistant winemaker. And he came up to me and said, you know, I'm going to open a Loire Valley winery. Uh, wine, wine Valley, you know, wine, Loire Valley-esque wine company with, with Willamette Valley fruit. And uh, do you want to be a partner? And I was like, okay, well, maybe there's a lot to this that I don't know. And I was like, <laughs> okay, Gamay, you know, Malone, you know, Shannon, sure, let me talk. And then we became a partner. So caveat, I am a, a minority partner in a winery called Bow and Arrow. It doesn't own any land. It makes their wine on Sandy Boulevard. Down in the basement. You've been there. <laughs> I have. Uh, so uh, you mentioned that that was kind of a big eye opener for you. The fact, the fact that there were other things here in the in the valley. So I'm curious. In the kind of interim years between your introduction to Oregon wine and you actually coming to Oregon, what were your impressions of the Oregon industry and how and, and its kind of uh, evolution? Well, I, I have to say I only know what I was selling. Mm -hmm. To be honest mm -hmm. with you, you know, I mean, and. Uh, but what happened is that I started researching about wineries and I stumbled across the Teutonic Wine Company and how they launched this Germanic thing. And so when I, when I, right before I left New York, I went to the Willamette Valley uh, tasting and I, uh, I jokingly went up to, uh, what's it, is it Lorraine, the boss, the, the Druin daughter? Uh, Veronique. No, the daughter oh. of Veronique, I think. Uh, Lorraine, yeah, Lorraine, Lorraine. Yeah. So I went up to her and I said, hey, you know, where's the Gamay? You know, how about a Pastu Grand? And uh, she went into uh, like how some, uh, <clears throat> some duke or knight or whatever, you know, king banished Gamay in the 1300s. And so, you know, there's no way they're going to plant any Gamay. I was like... It was all in good fun, you know, because <laughs> I didn't tell her I was going to start hopefully doing this project. But uh, but then I looked at the tasting book and I looked around and I was like, you know what? The Willamette Valley is a pinostocracy. <laughs> and, you know, Pinot Noir is king. Even today, if you go to the website and you open it up, it's, you know, we are Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. and it's like, and I was just wondering, it's like, I don't know. I mean... Is that always going to be the way, or what? What was? Are there other people doing things? And I know that other people had other grapes. Let Cameron, you know. I mean, I wrote, I just, I researched the whole history of Gamay in the valley, so I have all this, all these studies of where, you know, how it came, you know, where it went, and you know, when when I moved here, there was only four bottlers, you know, and now I think there's forty something. Mm -hmm. So. But um, 
I then, you know, meeting, meeting, meeting Barnaby, led down the path to him getting fruit at what is David Hill, which used to be Corey. That led me to meeting Jeff Veer. Jeff Veer has a winery golden cluster, which he's eight plus grapes counting of new things that have never been in Oregon. And that, and then he introduced me to Chad Stock. Chad Stock was at Johan at the time, which I consider uh, the ground zero of the new Oregon. You know, I don't know if you know, there's these books that come out, the new France, the new Spain, the new thing. Well, one day there will be the new Oregon. And, um, you know, Johan couldn't sell their grapes mm -hmm. because they weren't going to make us something ripe enough for what the contemporary palate of Pinot are. So they couldn't sell. They had to basically give them away at a loss. So they started cutting them up and putting different grapes in, Blaufrankisch, uh, Gruner, then Gamay, then Melon de Bourgogne. Now there's seven yen. I mean, it just keeps on going. They're 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 changing the the vineyard. They're not going away from Pinot Noir, but so that kept going, and they keep going. And then, as you may know, uh, Bree and Chad are off on their own doing another project, and they have two vineyards that are. Um, planting all kinds of stuff. I think it's Yola Springs and one called, uh, I couldn't, I had to write it down because I couldn't, couldn't, uh, Constantitas, C-O-N-C-I-N-I-T-A-S. They're planting all Portuguese varietals. So, uh, you know, PDX Wine, which is, which is the company we started here, that's the name of it, and we launched it in 2011. In 2021, we sold 34 different Oregon grapes. So um, I'd say that might set a record. I'm not so sure, <laughs> but uh, I'm hoping that we'll eventually be selling 60, uh -huh. and maybe Oregon will have 200 grapes. Maybe we'll have a valley of 100. You know. So as you set out to start PDX Wines, what was what what was the initial goal? What was the initial kind of I will be successful if I've done this? Well, I had to make more than I was making year one, number one, otherwise I was, you know, going to be looking for a job. <laughs> but again, I, you know, look, there's some, so many great companies that were here before us, mm -hmm. but I believe that we are just like, you know, the spark of other people doing other things. We're sort of a spark of just another layer of, of great wine, great wine being sold, you know, distribution is buy it, sell it, right? It's mm -hmm. no, but you know, we're curating a portfolio and uh, you know, again, there's plenty of other great companies out there in Portland, but we're pretty proud of what we've done. And uh, you know, other pe people have come up to us who own their own companies and thanked us for, you know, helping change things, you know, and uh, um, Portland, I think is at an all time peak mm -hmm. in wine. You know, and uh, the weirdest thing is, is that COVID made it better. We're going to come back and talk about that, I promise. But I'm curious, uh, in the, you mentioned kind of meeting a person, kind of following down the rabbit hole of, of interesting Oregon producers. Uh, how long did it take you to kind of come up with the, the portfolio that you were hoping for? And, and what was involved in it? Like, well, how, how, how was it kind of in your head? How was it put together? Well, I mean, you got to remember that Weinbow and Skernick, Palanter, you know, they were always, they were always innovative in the uh, American wine market, you know. Um, so it's in my my 
spirit soul to look for new things. Mm -hmm. And so I just started digging. You know, we, we, we uh, hooked up with Analemma early on. I don't know if you know Analemma, but they're in the gorge. First Mencia planted in America. Uh, they're making Petit Monsang soon. I mean, they just, you know, they're just doing a sort of a Spanish vibe thing out in the gorge. And the gorge is going to be, you know, quite the grape, you know, explosion, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot happening out there. Mm -hmm. So it just was piece by piece. I met Tom Monroe for lunch. You know, Kate and Tom have division, you know, winemaking company. And so uh, um, we lunched because we're both, you know, interested in the Grateful Dead. So it's like I Googled, you know, something or, you know, and it came up that they were going to start that space that they started. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, talked about maybe music. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to track this guy down, you know. <laughs> and so we taste, I tasted his first wine. So the first wine that Kate and Tom made, and you know, and we're like, okay, let's do this. So it just, that was great. Teutonic was first, Division was second. Uh, then there's Ovum, you know, which is a, you know, fantastic, you know, and continually evolving winery that's you know has its little roots in you know Riesling and and Gwertz and and uh, Muscat but uh, continually morphing and making great wine sparkling wine coming home oh, really? so yes his uh, wife was assistant winemaker at Argyle and they're partners in doing the whole thing together so that was great who else do we have we picked up uh, Oh, well, we luckily got Kelly Fox, you know, that was a score, you know, and it just, you know, just, it started morphing. We don't have a lot, but we finally sold seven figures worth of wine last year, which, you know, not, it's not a, it's not, uh, it's a drop in the bucket for Oregon, but for us, it was huge, you know, and, uh, and you mentioned 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we pretty much moved through 2020 pretty, you know, uh, easily and without any bumps so all of our team seemed to know how to make wine or sell off some things <laughs> but uh, it was a success for us and that so you mentioned all the different the, the, the all the different grapes the 34 grapes you're selling from oregon uh, what, uh, if any, what are the challenges of that in a market where people think of Oregon Pinot Noir and maybe not other things? What are the kind of unique challenges to introducing people to other things from Oregon? Uh, we don't have that challenge. No challenge? No challenge. No. We have the wide open eyes. We hope the wallets open up, mm -hmm. but uh, the eyes and the, the taste buds are there. No. Um, since we started, it's, there's no, I mean, everybody buys Pinot Noir, of course, but there's nobody that we work with that was like, you know, mm -hmm. you know, no, that's, it's, uh, I think it's only going to grow. I think, you know, I think the problem for, uh, I think if you talk to a lot of young winemakers, they would probably like to have more availability of unique grapes and different things. I mean, I just don't think it's possible. I think you have to partnership with a grower or find someone that's, you know, uh, not going to like only think that Pinot Noir is the way it's got to be. I got to make, you know, a certain price for ton. Mm -hmm. Economics runs, you know, the wine business. It's like any business. So. Someone can't open and buy a vineyard and, you know, plant uh, Arinto and then um, think they're going to get the same price. Mm -hmm. But if they can still make it work, I think that there's winemakers out there that would just grab all kinds of stuff. 
So tell me about the, the, the you mentioned you've been here about 10 years in PDX Wines. Tell me about the, the biggest, uh, what are the biggest changes you've seen among growing styles, among wine styles, among production, um, and what have you kind of been most excited about in your discoveries? Well, I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a loaded word, but, you know, I think that the, uh, the Oregon has changed over the years to be more of a natural wine market. Um, and that, like I said, it's a loaded word. What is natural wine? Um, I came up with a silly term years ago called spoofilated, you know, where, you know, wine was, you know, all kinds of poshed up and 200% new oak and, you know, all kinds of treatments to make it taste a certain way and yeasted so that the yeast would have an effect on the wine, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that uh, more and more and more it's become, that's what people are looking for. But number one thing that anybody cares about here to me and it is the farming. So it's, uh, if it, it, it's absolutely the first word I think in a, in a wine sales conversation is, you know, how is it farmed? Mm -hmm. And so that's the big thing. And I think that, you know, like you, you go to Europe now and you talk about certain regions and it's like the whole of the region is almost organic mm -hmm. and, you know, organic mm -hmm. doesn't make the wine good. Organic makes the, the grapes healthy. That the, what makes the wine good is the people making it and how everything else involved. But, but the fact that it's organic, I mean, you know, I've been eating organic food since I was a little kid, you know, because I wanted to, you know, I mean, it was like, it wasn't my parents who did that. It was like, I was like, yeah, why don't I, sh I should eat organic food, you know what I mean? It's got to be good for me, you know? <laughs> and so I think that's the number one thing. So there is, a, there is the naturalness of wine. There's lower sulfites. There's, you know, um, so that's, 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 you know, when I moved here, Joe Dresner was like, dude, don't even mention the word natural. Don't say it. <laughs> You're going to get into some <laughs> arguments with buyers and stuff. I've been there. Don't do it. You know, it's like, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I think he was right in 2010, mm -hmm. 2011, but uh, he's... Uh, gone from the planet but uh, he would not he would be happy with what's going on here so when it comes to wines you're representing do you find that you are more often seeking out based on things you're discovering or the things are being presented to you that are exciting to you uh, we sometimes get presented things but we're more of the you know the one that's looking mm -hmm. so we do use the press a little bit, you know. I mean, I read, I, you know, saw a limestone vineyard, you know, inexpensive wine from Argentina and checked it out. And, you know, now we have a new portfolio. But, you know, in general, you know, we, it's just, just, it's just digging. Mm -hmm. And sometimes a portfolio needs to move, you know. Mm -hmm. Sense of economics, small company needs to go to a bigger company. Something from us will probably go to a bigger company one day, you know. It's just the way it goes, you know. So you talked earlier about some of the things you're looking for. So as you're sort of seeking out discovering, are there certain sort of keywords or things that you're looking for that are especially specifically exciting to you? 
Um, not really. I mean, for example, we didn't have any Georgian wine, so we had to find a Georgian wine because we knew that it was gonna, it was, it was, it was eating up. Um, you know, we don't have many German wines, but you know, we tracked down a couple things. You know, and now what? Luckily, one of our importers is working with Germans, so uh, so our portfolio is growing in that regard. But we also, you know, I mean, again, I worked for Skernick, and Skernick's old tagline was all the greatest estate ball wines, all the greatest estate ball wines from around the world or something like that. That's that's the original Michael Skernick now it's Skernick Wines. But uh, so we we have this I feel the same way. We're gonna we're gonna look all over the globe for the wine. We're not gonna just think, you know, we're gonna open an Italian wine company and we're gonna sell French too. We did though in the beginning of the company wanna be a go-to Spanish wine company. And that was when we moved here, there was two Spanish restaurants open. <laughs> and then, you know, slowly but surely, I think it got to 11. And then, you know, the pandemic brought it down to three, I think. Uh, but the Spanish wine is, has blown up. So if there's something that we did that helped or helped do, we helped, you know, keep the Spanish, keep the Spanish thing going or, or get it, Get it going. Not that other people again. Again, so many great companies in this town, mm -hmm. great wholesalers. So uh, we all work hard together to make this a great place to drink. But I believe we helped the Spanish wine scene. Why Spanish in particular? We just thought there was a there was a gap here. I mean, no Span two Spanish restaurants. You know, great Spanish importers. You know, coming from New York. You know, mm -hmm. there's lots of them. You know, so mm -hmm. we just thought it was a niche. You know. You gotta get out of your niche. So you mentioned other uh, other businesses. Tell me about the growth of or the changes in sort of the Portland wine market in, in your time here, and what you sort of see as as coming next for Portland, the Portland wine scene. Well, luckily, places keep opening. <laughs> um, Again, I think it's slightly tied into the, you know, again, that word of, you know, farmer, natural wine mm -hmm. that, you know, a lot more people have discovered. I mean, think about it. I mean, Arter is probably the biggest natural wine place in town, mm -hmm. you know, and they didn't exist, you know, it's 2011. Uh, you know, Dame didn't exist in 2011. Bar Norman didn't exist in 2011. You know, it's just so much stuff has started to come up. And, you know, I think it's still going. And, you know, there's some very exciting things happening in McMinnville, as you probably know. Um, so it's just, it's just the, the market seems to grow. Also Bend, which is sort of relatively new for us as a company to work in, has just seemed to have exploded, you know. I mean, it was, I think that you could say, some people say it was a California wine market and, you know, people from California love Bend and they'd like to retire there. And says, you know, again, I don't know this for facts, but that's what you hear. But now, you know, it's an incredible place full of, full of great uh, places that are new restaurants, people that love, you know, again, the, the organic style of wine, you know. So tell me about building building your team at PDX Wine and and what you're what you've looked for when you've looked for people there and and how that has expanded as you, as you've grown. Well, we opened in 2011, and as you may know, there was a financial crisis crisis in 2008, I believe, and it seemed, according to my business partner here, to linger, mm -hmm. and so when we opened in 2011. Uh, 
three companies closed. One that we knew was closing before we got here, and then two soon after. One was just because the owner wasn't because of financial. They owned a very large uh, winery, but they decided to no longer want to self-distribute. And so they let some, they let all their, uh, they moved their brand to a bigger company and then they still, all the you know, European wine became available. Mm-hmm. So we were picking up portfolios there, but another company that was more importantly, when they closed, we picked up, you know, Bonnie Crocker. Uh, she wanted to be work with us and she's great. And she was a big part of our success. And um, so it just built organically, you know, that's, People start hearing about you, you keep growing, you get some salespeople. So, you know, somebody work part time, then they, you know, don't have to take care of the kids anymore, and then they work full time. And, you know, it's, we've got a great team. So, we, I want to talk about uh, obviously, since you're, you've kind of, your kind of intensive view of Oregon uh, is about 10 years here. Tell me about what the Oregon wine world looks like to you now and how that kind of how you how you that makes you think it will look in the future what what comes next for the Oregon wine and what are the, some of the things you're kind of most excited about well we touched on it earlier you know i think that uh you know it would be nice if the willamette valley was you know 50 percent pinot noir and 50 percent other grapes you know one can dream um again it's you know what the great founders of oregon wine did you know you know well, it's fantastic, you know. I mean, not to, it's not it's not to it's not to when you thank them for what they did, but I think now let's see what it, what else can happen, you know. So, I guess you know I I believe and and uh, I think that we'll just be seeing an incredible evolution go on, you know. Historic will stay, things will change, you know, new grapes will come. I mean, who knows what the valley can do? You know, who knows what, you know, unfortunately, global warming, which is changing things. I don't know what that does for grapes, you know, I'm not a scientist. But are there other grapes that should come into the valley because they're going to be good for a warmer climate? And, mm-hmm. Or let's just hope we fix the problem and then we don't have to have this conversation. <laughs> would be nice, wouldn't it? You mentioned Johan earlier as kind of for you, kind of the the, the benchmark of the new the new Oregon. So, uh, what do you think they will look like specifically, and what will the kind of the emulators take away from you, what Johan has done? Uh, well, you know that's a complex question. I'm not sure how to answer that. Uh, you know, Johan keeps on going. They're going to keep adding new grapes, I believe, and they're going to keep doing what they do. I mean. Now, the young generation of winemakers, they all want to buy Johan fruit. So interestingly, 10 years ago, they couldn't sell it, or you know, 12 years ago, whatever year that was, they couldn't sell it and had to give it away. And now, you know, everybody wants it. So I think that, you know, people realize that wine, you know, the cooler climate, I mean, now it's its own AVA, the, what, Van Duzer or something. And, and so you can see that people want, you know, there's going to be more and more of that. And I think that, you know, hopefully they are, with the work that people, the name Johan all over things, will just, you know, make people say, hey, you know what, I'm going to plant Pinot Donis. It has the name Pinot in it, so it's got <laughs> something going for it. But, uh, you know. Again, I don't know what grows where well, so mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, you know, but I just like diversity. Mm-hmm. 
Speaking of that, you mentioned the gorge earlier as, as, a, as, a, as an exciting place. What have the what have you seen there that, that that leads you to that? And what again, kind of what do you see looking ahead for the gorge? Well, I mean, Analemma to me is you know the groundbreaker. I mean, just because I know them. I mean, I, we we also represent Idiot's Grace, phenomenal wines and lots of Italian varietals, and they're literally right over there. Mm -hmm. So you may know uh, Nate Reddy. Mm -hmm. So Nate, you know, you hang out with Nate, and he's just like, he's pulling out the map, going like, yeah, this thing over here should be Toraldigo, and you know, uh, Nociola. This is a great place for you know the Trentino grapes, and then you. You know, a couple miles over there, you know, I think Nebbiolo would be this one. And it's just like, he believes that it's just going to be a uh, explosion of opportunity. Then again, we don't want to steal all those cherries. <laughs> it's true. Do you see, with places like the Gorge or Roger, Umqua Valleys, uh, other, the other wine growing regions of the state, without that kind of flagship varietal, have you seen that? From your perspective, be a hindrance this far, or is it, or thus far, or is it given more room to explore? I think it's more room to explore, but I also remember we deal with with the wide open eyes, folks. You know, I mean, they're ready to taste, they're ready to learn. We don't, you know, I don't know what it's like around the country. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that Brooklyn is wide open as well. I have a, I'm a minority partner in a business there, and we sell a lot of the same wines that we sell here, and uh, and some different. And um, they're also curious and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Of course, all the great Pinot Noir sells <laughs> very well, too. But I think that the Gorge has an opportunity of not having, you know, a flagship varietal. So it's like the last thing that sells in some cases is the Pinot Noir from the Gorge because, you know, they have different things. And so that's, you know, although great Pinot Noir is grown, so. So tell me about uh, future for yourself. What, what comes next for you and, and your various enterprises? Well, you know, I have been in the wine business, you know, pretty much uh, straight for 46 years. So, uh, I'm not so sure what's next. <laughs> Maybe uh, escape off to South America. No, but I've got. I'm going to be working for a long time. We've got a young family, and so uh, I've got at least another decade in me. Um, and so I just. I mean, we're hoping to see PD, PDX wine grow. We're hoping to see uh, Oregon grow. We're hoping, uh, you know, to see Oregon wine grow across the uh, the, the the states. You know, and. Uh, I don't believe I will be involved in any more new companies, although I said that and I <laughs> helped start one right before the pandemic, which was the exact wrong time to do it. So unfortunately, that one didn't work, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Something you mentioned a second ago kind of made me, th made me think, uh, have... You mentioned kind of like Brooklyn, for example, as a place that's very excited. Have you found it easier? Have there been more places that are more excited about Oregon wine? Is it spreading in that way as well? I think, again, again, from what I talk to people around the country, you know, people that buy bow and arrow, you know, in various markets, Georgia and things like that, and they all speak of, you know, the same thing, that people will like good wine. There, it's no longer, there's always the label, there's always the price, 
there's for sure the farming there's absolutely the taste but you know it's the the the, the there's no you know, I only want to drink Bordeaux or I only want to trace, you know, the whatever this. No, of course, there's people that only want to drink a Walla Walla cab and bless them for that. But, you know, it's I think that in general, you know, it's a, a wide open market. The young people are very wide open to mm -hmm. taste new and, and interesting things. They don't come from, you know, how do we how do you say it? You know, like for now, you know, I was I was one of the greatest wine snobs ever. You know what I mean? And I was polite, but very, very, this is what great wine is. And this is a great wine. And that's a great wine. And, you know, um, and Malbec, no. And, you know, Washington, no. And, you know, but then when I came here, I was like, I'm going to just cool that. I'm just going to like, just everything's good. <laughs> People are having a good time with an over-oaked Malbec, you know. Okay, good. Go have a good time. But, um, yeah, I just think that right now there's a, most people, well, 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 okay, sorry, I think what I was trying to say is that what we want people to do is just have a good time. And this, especially nowadays, it's like, you're having a good time. You really like wine. We want you to stay in the wine business. We certainly don't want to lose you to the cocktail world or, you know, beer or things like that. We're trying to build a business, you know, and not just my own, but just we're trying to build a business of wine, you know, and, um. So let's just let people enjoy. But I think the younger, again, generation, they're interested in different things. You know, look at pet gnats, for example. There's just those billion sparkling little bubbly things all over the place. And uh, I think it's starting to slow down. But orange wine has uh, also appeared out of, you know, not really nowhere because there's Grovner and Radicon and things like that. But, you know, in general, in, in Georgia, excuse me, you know, um, but in general, it's like orange everything everywhere, you know. I think even that the the government thinks that if you sell, try to sell something with the word orange wine on it, it's supposed to be made out of oranges, though, by the way. <laughs> um, so amber's a category name for it. Um, but uh, I just think that kids are drinking all kinds of stuff, you know. Hmm. You know, the 25-year-olds, and they're drinking whatever the local store is excited about. But I think there is a huge amount of people who are concerned about the farming, as we spoke earlier. So, How have you seen that change, both the, the farming itself and the, the care about the farming? Is that, is that and kind of what's the timeline over that change? Well, I, I think it's been going on forever. I mean, for example, there's a great uh, Neil Rosenthal estate called Chateau Simon. It's in the Provence, and they stopped uh, buying pesticides in 1942, I believe, because there was a war going on and nobody was delivering them anymore. So I believe that over time, you know, that there's been the necessity to stop. But also there was, I think, in the in the there was a period too that came back where, yeah, use the chemicals, better more, go great, go great. And then slowly but surely, you know, back to the land. And so I think it's just been growing steadily. New York has always been interested in it. I mean, you know, we've got Louis Dresner and Herman Lynch and, you know, a lot of the great importers um, have been into it. Now, every importer has a pile of organic wine. I mean, there's just nobody that doesn't have organic wine. So it's now, a, like I said, there's certain regions, I can't remember which ones, but like maybe one village in Chiani Classico that's completely organic, mm -hmm. completely, every producer, 
you know. So again, I don't really have a lot of facts to, you know, 100% back up which is which one it is or, or where it is, but it's just it's a it's a it's happening everywhere. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we needed to cover? No, I just, you know, after 46 years in the wine business, I've only learned one thing, and that is the future's unwritten. So I'm pretty excited to see what happens next for the world of wine. I really appreciate you interviewing me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and, and, uh, and your candor here today. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.